1: Learn all about investing in real estate in Indianapolis, Indiana with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Indianapolis. Plus, syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Indianapolis. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message
0: from our sponsors, All right, let's get started. So buy and hold real estate investing.
2: I am James Orr. Uh, So I did put a new slide here a long time ago. We used to actually have a slide that I showed like the next four or five classes. But um, I I sort of have a backlog because uh, I haven't done classes live in a while. And there's been a list of things and I just kind of keep adding to the end. So this is the tentative list of upcoming classes. So tonight we're primarily going to go through buy and hold. Um, how many people were here for the real estate investing strategies class where we talked about all the different strategies in one class? No one else was here? I think you were. Yeah, so we only had one person here for that. So in that class, I gave you an overview of all the different strategies and one of your handouts that you have, uh, this one right here. Oh, this one actually. This one right here shows the list of all the different strategies that there are. And then we primarily, in the classes I teach, we primarily focus on buy and hold, Nomad and house hacking. Those are the three strategies we primarily cover. Then there's a list of additional ones that I'm going to teach classes on, but that's not the primary focus of the classes I typically teach. It's more to just be comprehensive so that people have an understanding of why we're focusing on the three and not this whole other list. And then there's a couple that I'm not going to cover at all. So tonight we're going to go and do a deep dive into the buy and hold strategy, but you'll notice there's a whole bunch of classes on a bunch of the other strategies listed on here. Those are going to be What I would say is similar format to tonight, except for deep dives into those specific strategies. So for example, tonight we're doing buy and hold, next week we're doing the Nomad strategy, which if you guys have never heard of the Nomad strategy, so then we have a couple of new people. The Nomad strategy is to buy a house, as an owner occupant, you move into the property, it's a requirement of the lender. And one of the reasons why you do that is it's a lower down payment and the interest rates are better. So you move into the house, you are required to live there for a year. During that year, you can just live there by yourself, or if you choose to, you can add on house hacking and have tenants living there with you or rent out a room or whatever you wanna do. And then after a year, when your obligation to the lender is up, you can then convert that to a rental and you can acquire properties every year doing that. But you only had to put 5% down instead of putting 20 or 25% down. So you can acquire properties with one chunk of down payment and it's not, and since the loans are actually better for owner-occupant, it's less bad than you would think to go ahead and put 5% down instead of 20% or 25% down. So the nomad strategy, we're gonna cover that and all the different variations I listed some variations on your investing strategies list there. Then on June 1st, we're gonna do house hacking. Um, and then after that, June 8th, we're gonna do the Burr strategy, which is buy, rehab, rent, refinance. And there's an optional fourth R, which is to repeat the process. So you can use this to kind of continue to acquire properties. Um, so we'll talk about the burst strategy. Then we'll talk about quick turn and flipping properties if you're interested in doing that as a business model. Then we'll talk about wholesaling real estate on June 22nd, and then on June 29th we'll talk about real estate options. You guys may have heard of real estate lease options, where you lease a property and you have an option to buy. This is the strategy where you just have the option. You do not have a lease on the property at all. You're getting a you're getting the rights but not the obligation to buy a property for a fixed price. And you're you're basically holding onto that option. And then there's a very active option auction strategy where you get an option on a property and then you immediately market that property in order to sell it to somebody. And it's usually done through some type of uh, bid sale or auction process on like one evening, like a Sunday evening in order to get the highest bidder and have the property sold that way. This is really like a variation if you wanna think of it this way. It's like a variation on real estate brokerage in some ways because a real estate brokerage, a listing contract, if you squint really hard and step very far back, a real estate contract is sort of like an option agreement in some ways, right? You have the right to then market the property and get paid a fee in order to sell it. Well, this is sort of like option auction strategy is a way to do it as a principal. So it's a variation on that theme. So that's gonna be on June 29th. July 6th, tax liens and tax deed sales. That's when you buy people's tax liens or tax deeds. Like for example, if someone doesn't pay their property taxes, you can come in and pay their property taxes And you usually get a return on the money that you put up. And then there's a really, really small chance that if they don't do it and you wait a long enough period of time, you can actually foreclose on the property for them not having paid their back taxes. We'll talk a little bit about this tonight. We talk about um, stability in real estate. Um, It's one of the kind of options on there. So that's what we've got there. Um, So tax tax deed, tax deed, real estate, is gonna be on July 6th. July 13th, I guess it's July 6th. July 13th, creative financing, real estate entrepreneurship. That's all the creative stuff. Subject to lease option, lease purchase, wrap financing, agreement for deed, contract for deed. Um, That whole list on there is like that big graphic in the middle. That's that whole thing, July 13th. We're gonna cover all those in one night. A lot of them are really similar in the mechanics. Kind of, there's a little bit of difference, but they're very, very similar in how they're structured. So we'll cover all those that night. Then July 20th, I'll try to do real estate partnerships using this format. It'll be very different than the format we usually teach partnerships, but you'll like this new one. And then the next class after that, July 27th, oh, this is sort of like the dividing line when I'm done teaching strategy classes. So this is sort of just getting through all the strategies on that list. And it's gonna be very similar to the format tonight for those. Um, And then next one is marketing to find off-market deals. This sort of supplements all these other strategies. If you're planning on doing deals where you're not gonna buy them in the MLS, certain strategies are found in the MLS, certain strategies are found Uh, usually through for sale by owners, and you have to market in order to find those. So we'll cover a lot of marketing to find off-market deals. I'll do a two-hour class on that. And then this is a new class I've never taught before on August 3rd. So um, I've got a client right now who went under contract on a new construction property back when interest rates were really, really reasonable. Um, Interest rates are no longer as low as they were. And so they've kind of risen quite a bit. And so he's shocked by how much the monthly payment went up because he was counting on a certain number. And now that the interest rates have almost doubled, it's a much, much higher number. And so it made me think of, this is not the only case where we can have shocks when we're a real estate investor and we're considering buying properties. So I've got a list working through that is like all the different shocks you can experience when you're buying rental properties and then what to do about them. So number one is just being aware in advance that this could happen and what you can do to prevent them upfront but then there's some other things you may be able to do while the shock is happening. So that class is all about real estate investing shocks, things that can come up while you're acquiring properties that you may not have thought of. And then August 10th is two new concepts that you may not have heard before, um, but there have been ones I've been including in the real estate financial planner software for a while and ones that I, I, someone mentioned a couple weeks ago. Was that you, Steve, that was mentioning those? Yeah, so so there's there's these two concepts. One is cash flow resiliency, and the other one is equity resiliency. So cash flow resiliency, the basic idea is how much can your rent on a property drop before you have negative cash flow? So how resilient is the cash flow you have on your rental properties on your whole portfolio? You can do it on a single property, but it's much more meaningful on the whole portfolio. And then equity resiliency is how resilient are you in your portfolio um, with equity when you have prices drop? And so There's different ways you can kind of like finance your portfolio or structure your portfolio where your whole portfolio is more resilient and there's ways you can structure it where it's less resilient. Um, So we'll we'll go over a lot of different examples and talk about that on August 10th. And then on August 17th, overcoming hurdles for real estate investors. So there there are several things that will limit your ability to acquire properties. You know, the most common ones I think a lot of people think of is down payments. I don't have enough down payment in order to acquire properties or I can't qualify for loans for some reason. So I'm gonna go over all the different hurdles that real estate investors have. We'll cover all those in that particular class. And then on August 24th, real estate investing Rubicons. So if you're familiar with history, I think it was Julius Caesar who uh, was crossing the Rubicon of river somewhere in, I don't know, uh, another country. Um, (laughs) And so uh, the, the idea though is it's sort of like a marker where you've made progress and you, in theory at least, don't ever go back on that. And so there are a couple different things when you think about real estate investing that you need to get to a point where you've grown to a certain situation. So I've called them sort of like Rubicons where you've gotten to the point where you now have good enough credits you can qualify for loans. You've gotten to the point where you have enough down payments or you've gotten to the point where you're good at property management. So I'm going to give you a list of the different Rubicons that there are. I'm trying to hire a graphic artist to do like a big 11 by 17 sort of uh, treasure chest looking map that has all the different Rubicons that you would list out. And then you can go ahead and mark off when you've crossed those um, to kind of visualize where you are in the process of achieving your goal for real estate investing. So that is the list of upcoming classes. Is that interesting to anybody? Okay, those look good. All right, good. Is there
0: anything I'm missing on there that you guys are like, hey, how come you're not teaching a class on blank? Anyone? All right, good. Guess I got them all. Oh yeah. I've been teaching classes for like 18, 19 years. So yeah.
2: um, You missed some classes. We did a market stats class last week. Um, So you missed a whole class on market stats. I didn't record it. You missed a class on all the different real estate investing strategies. It was like a big overview class. Then before that I did a class on, I think I did the uh, deal analysis spreadsheet class where I walked you through what all the fields were and how those fields worked out did i do any other live ones that was that was it right i think those are the live ones that i've done since since i came back and then i think earlier this year i did one on um real estate financial independence retire early budget spreadsheet where you can actually calculate out your minimum target monthly income for retirement and your ideal target monthly income for retirement so i have uh, classes on that and then i released a brand new spreadsheet for deal analysis which you'll see part of it um on there too so but yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of classes. I think we have close to
0: 200 class recordings posted on the website. So There you go. See, Steve's going to
2: check me. I knew enough to know that it was like another country and that it was a river, right? Was it Julius Caesar? There you go. See, I know just a little tiny bit about history to keep me dangerous. All right. All right, so buy and hold real estate investing. As I said, I'm James Orr. So real estate investing strategy. So you have the sheet with you, the handout. It says on the top real estate investing strategies. That's basically this list. So the primary strategies that we're, we, we kind of focus on are buy and hold, including short-term rentals, vacation rentals, the nomad strategy with all the different variations, nomad by proxy, nomad with house hacking, nomad to short-term rental, vacation rental, no a lease option nomad, and then the ultimate real estate agent retirement plan, um, which is it's supposed to say agent in there. I need to update that slide. And then house hacking. So these are the ones we primarily teach classes on. This is where the overwhelming majority of the classes will ultimately be. There's gonna be some kind of like one-offs, but that's where we are. Then there's a whole set of special section here. The secondary strategies, all the creative financing stuff, quick turning and flipping properties, burr and burr, wholesaling, wholetailing, options and auction strategy, tax liens, tax deeds, partnerships and syndications. And then we'll cover deal maker, syndicator, money partner and loan partner. When I did the other class list, did I have wholesaling on there? I did, right? Okay, awesome. I just must've skipped it or something. But uh, yeah, we're covering that. And then the strategies I'm not really gonna talk about are real estate investment trusts, because you basically buy those as like a, through a real estate broker, uh, not a real estate broker, a stock broker. And it's more of a security than it is really a real estate investing strategy. I sort of put it on there to be a completionist and kind of be all inclusive, but really, that's not something I to cover. And then I'm not gonna go into separate detail about probate, short sales, foreclosures, and pre-foreclosures, Cause you'll get those when we cover the other strategies and they're not really their own strategy per se. So we'll cover those, but we're not gonna have separate classes on them. Any questions on this? Is it hot in here already? It is. Let's open the door if you don't mind. Just grab it and like do the thing the foot thing, please. Thank you. All right, cool. So exceptions. So um, one of the things I'm gonna go over tonight is this worksheet right here. And this worksheet is what I call the real estate investing strategy profile. If you think about it, when, you, when you're when you kind of determining, hey, I want to do this particular strategy or this particular strategy, we want to think about all the different characteristics of that particular strategy. And so what I tried to do is I thought about all the different dimensions you could measure or think about or consider a different strategy with. And I listed them all out with the most common kind of characteristics that you can have. And so you're going to go through this tonight with your pen, and we're going to do this for the buy and hold real estate investing. And then you're going to be able to do that. Now, When we go through this, I'm going to tell you how I think about buy and hold real estate investing. But you're going to say to me, James, what What? about this? What about when you do buy and hold, but you do it this way? Yes, there are probably more obscure examples where you can kind of structure these. And they're they're kind of like slight different variations and stuff like that. But I'm trying to focus in on the the majority of the use cases. And you could have exceptions to this thing. You could come up to me later and say, James, what about if you do it this way? Yeah, you could definitely put it on there. But I'm going to try to be most mainstream and kind of the most correct that I think of. And if you want to debate this with me, this is absolutely brand new. I am uh, I'm creating a database of all the different strategies with all these different characteristics so that if you want to go search for, show me the ones you can do with no down payment or show me the ones you can do with no money or show me the ones you could do that have the lowest risk or the lowest activity, you know, they're the most passive or they're the most scalable. I can give you a list of the ones grouped by those categories and you can look at it and inspect it in a database format. Um, So that's 95% built. And it's what I use to make this thing, the profile for you. And it's also what I use tonight to do the presentation. But you'll notice we've got all these other classes on all these different strategies. That's what I'm using to create all the different strategies, okay? So kind of just follow along, take notes if you want to. And I tried to write it out for you so that you can just check them off as you go. Okay. And I have a little beware warning here, just because you don't think there's a chance that X can happen, doesn't mean that it won't happen. This is designed to be a starting point discussion to help you make better investing decisions on your own with additional knowledge. Please do your own research. So a lot of these strategies I'm gonna say, you know, I think about it this way, there's this risk or this way to do it. Is it possible that you're like, no, James is wrong and there's never a risk of property values going down or rents going down, right? You, you understand how some people could believe that to be true, It's not true, okay? And just because it's a small probability doesn't mean it won't happen. All right. All right, so buy and hold variations. So when I talk about buy and hold, what I'm really focusing on is traditional buy and hold, where you put a down payment on a property, usually 15% with PMI, 20% is the most common one, or 25% down. You can put more down. You can go all the way up to paying full cash for the property. I'm usually focusing on single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, And then it also includes all the apartment stuff, all the commercial buildings, five units and up. So that's all just traditional buy and hold in my mind. Um, In addition to that, I group in short-term rentals, vacation rentals, because you're buying the property and you're holding it. It's just you happen to be, instead of renting it to a long-term tenant, you happen to be renting it by the night or by the week or by the weekend. And so I include that as a short-term rental or, or vacation rental in this model. Now, is it a stretch to think about buy and hold as You know, I'm going to buy a building and I'm going to do assisted living, or I'm going to buy a building and I'm going to offer a specific service. It sort of gets on the edge of, okay, you're doing a business. You're doing an assisted living business, but you also just happen to be buying real estate. So you could say, okay, I'm doing, you know, storage units. Storage units, I guess, is buy and hold, but it's not really what I traditionally think of. So could you kind of classify it as buy and hold? Yes, is it really a separate business of, of like having storage units and running a storage unit business or having assisted living and doing that or buying a, an office building for your practice or you know, land in order to run your business off of? Yeah, I mean, you could do all those too, but I'm really thinking of it more in the traditional sense of single family homes through fourplex and then multifamily properties, apartments and greater. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, cool. And this is intended to be you know, interactive. So feel free to interrupt. Please do use the microphone so your question gets on the mic though. Just raise your hand, I'll bring you the mic or someone else will bring in the mic. Any questions on this one? Cool. All right, so one of the ways I kind of classify different strategies is, is this a real estate investing strategy or is this a real estate entrepreneurship strategy? And the way I kind of classify those is with a real estate investing strategy, you're primarily taking money, deploying it, putting it into an investment, investing in something with the expectation of getting a return on your money. That's real estate investing to me. There's another way to look at this where you're out there doing work. You're doing labor. Maybe you have some money in the deal, but you're primarily working a job in order to create money, to create value in some way. That's more like house flipping where, yeah, you have a little bit of money invested in the deal, but you're really not looking to get a return on that money. You're really looking, I'm going to go put labor in and do that. So is buy and hold real estate investing more real estate investing where you're putting in money and you're expecting to get a return? Or is it more like entrepreneurship where you're actually going out there and doing work and trying to make money from the work? What do you think? The first option, real estate investing, right? So with real estate entrepreneurship, real estate investing, are you primarily investing money with the hope of getting return on that money or time, in many cases, some money to get a return on your time? For buy and hold, most folks are typically investing money with the hope of getting return on that money. Short-term rentals sort of takes one step more toward entrepreneurship because in most cases, with short-term rentals, you're doing more labor than you are with putting a tenant in a property and leaving them for a year or more. Does that make sense everybody? But it's still primarily real estate investing. You're deploying money and you're expecting to get a return on that money. Okay, so that's on your list. So you can start on your list, just kind of check it off. All right, so money required. So typically when we do buy and hold real estate investing, we're gonna go in and we're gonna get traditional financing from a bank. You're gonna go select the property, you're gonna to wanna to acquire that property, and so you're gonna to go to a lender, and you're gonna get, in most cases, traditional financing, conventional financing. There are 15% down, 20% down, 25% down, and more type, fi- type loans for these properties. You can buy them with cash, or you can put a down payment and actually get financing on them. So on this other sheet here, where we do loan type mortgage insurance comparisons, there's a whole bunch of different loans, and I tried to highlight the ones we were primarily talking about today, where the interest rates are. So you can see a little grayed out area on there. And that basically shows you the different financing options and what the rates were as of yesterday. Now, this is not like a rate quote for you. So please don't like tell me, are you are gonna go to your lender and say, James told me I could get 6.5% on this loan. So I want 6.5%. It is not a guaranteed rate. I'm not offering you financing. This is sort of like a snapshot in time. I called up the lender that I like to personally use and I asked him what the rates were yesterday, and we walked through this worksheet. Just out of curiosity too, would you guys prefer that I make this a like editable Excel worksheet version for you so that you could actually use it to kind of do your own comparisons? Would that be helpful to anybody? Or do you just like it when I give it to you in class? Anyone want me to create one that you could fill in? No one. Well, glad I didn't do that work then, that's awesome. Okay. So on that worksheet though, it shows you the different types of down payments you need and what the interest rates were on those particular loans. And in some cases, what the points were in order to get those particular rates. So typically when we're doing buy and hold, 15 to 25% down, you also need reserves. It would, and I, I know I'm, I'm sensitive every time I do this, but you would be stupid to invest in real estate without reserves, okay? And I know that sounds harsh, But it's supposed to be harsh because you would be stupid in order to invest in real estate without reserves. You need to have reserves in order to invest in real estate. Things happen that you're not going to expect. You need to have reserves. Okay. So even if you find a no down payment deal, is that nothing, no money required deal? No. In the overwhelming majority of cases, it's not. There are very few strategies that are no down payment and no other money required. Even if you find a nothing down deal, even if you got a VA loan or a USDA loan, or you managed to find a, a property that you could buy subject to where the seller's like, hey, just take over the debt of my property. That is still not a strategy that you can do with $0. Does everyone understand that, right? You need to have reserves in all those cases. It's a really good question. I need to do a two hour class. Question was how much in reserves? The really, really short answer is probably six months in something like a savings account, okay? All right. So typically, you need 15 to 25% down and reserves. You might also see, although much less frequently, in my opinion, bringing in a money partner where, like, maybe your dad says to you, Hey, I will make you a loan for the 20% down and you can go ahead and buy this property. So, bring in a money partner, or the other extreme is just buy it all cash. I think for a lot of folks, they would prefer to leverage their money and get a loan for it. Although I definitely know investors that are buying properties all cash. Okay, so this applies to both buy and hold, like traditional buy and hold and short-term rental, short-term vacation rentals. In addition, there is a kind of subset to this that when you're doing a vacation home short-term rental, there is an owner-occupant second home or vacation home loan that you can get with 10% down. So that would be the exception. You could actually go buy a property where it's a vacation home to you and you're gonna rent it out 11 and a half months of the year other than what you're gonna stay in there and you can get that with 10% down, okay? Any questions on money required? This is on your worksheet. Feel free to take notes. I see you that are not taking notes. What are you thinking? Do you have perfect memories? You can remember all this stuff? All right, cool. So credit required. So it's most common is to qualify for traditional investor financing. Non-owner occupant financing. The typical credit score needed in order to do these types of loans is 700. There are some exceptions if you have very low debt to income. So there's a possibility that you may be able to do a little bit better than 700, but most of the time it's gonna be 700. A less common situation, if you're buying a property without a loan at all, all cash, doesn't matter where your credit score is. You can buy the property all cash. Or if you're partnering with someone who's getting the loan, You may not need to qualify for the loan at all yourself, but someone will need to qualify, okay? Important note, credit scores can change over time. Credit score requirements can change over time. So check with your local lender for the most up-to-date credit requirements. So just because James said 700, you can't go to your lender and says, James told me it's 700. So where's my 700 credit score loan? Because they may tomorrow go out and say, it's now 720. We think that our risk profile is out of whack. We want to make sure that people at 720 are getting these non-owner occupied loans. They have the right to change their policies at any time. Individual lenders can, and also the companies that are or organizations that are buying the loans in the secondary market can require that the loans that they're selling them have to have higher credit scores too. So it can work as either an overlay, that's if the individual lender just adds that as an additional requirement that they're requiring, or it could be from, the quasi-government organizations that are buying the loans of the secondary market or the investors that are buying the loans. Any questions on credit required? You guys are quiet, group me. okay. All right, skills required. So the primary skills required for the buy and hold real estate investing strategy are deal analysis, you need to be able to analyze deals to determine what kind of deals they are, whether they cash flow, whether they make sense to buy, how two different properties compare or how 10 different properties compare that you're considering. Actually finding the cash flowing deals, searching them out in the MLS, going to look at them, evaluating them, acquisition financing, being able to get the loans that you need, those 15% down, 20% down, 25% down loans, and then property management skills. And by property management skills, I mean one of two different things. Either you need to be really good at managing properties yourself, or you need to be able to hire a property manager and manage your property manager when they do it. So one of those two. And then in addition, if you're doing short-term rentals, the skills for doing short-term rentals are slightly different than the skills for doing long-term property management.
0: I don't do short-term rentals, but I know it's different. Any questions on skills required? Cool.
2: Stability. Stability is an interesting one that I think most people have not heard of. I actually learned about this. Um, There's a guy whose name escapes me right now, but he does the um, Farnham Street Blogs. Anyone know the Farnham Street Blogs guy's name? I don't remember. But uh, he, he basically came out with a blog post. This is probably a couple months ago now. And it wasn't specific to real estate investing, but I immediately said, this applies to real estate investing. So we have this concept of stability. Something is passively stable is, if you don't do anything, it's, it won't, nothing will happen to it. It'll just sort of naturally work itself out. But something is actively stable, if you need to be actively doing something in order to keep that thing from killing you or making you lose money or hurting you in some way. And so he separates things into passive stability and active stability. Real estate in general is actively stable. You can't just buy a property, even the vacant land and just let it sit. If you don't do anything to your vacant land, you will lose that vacant land eventually because you have to pay taxes on it. So you have to buy the like, even most extreme example of, I buy vacant land, I don't do anything. You will lose that property if you don't pay taxes on it. Okay? Now, as you move down the spectrum, if you are doing fix and flips, it is very active. If you don't actually do something with your fix and flip, you'll lose the property. In most cases, if you're doing a hard money loan to the lender, lenders is gonna come in after six months or a year and they're gonna take the property. So it's very active in that way. But even buy and hold, I would say is an active stability. If you don't do something with your property, if you don't put tenants in there or manage your property manager pay your taxes, pay your mortgage on it, pay your insurance, do all these things that you need to do you will lose the property. And so I kind of started measuring real estate strategies on this spectrum of how active they are, how passive they are on the stability scale. And so buy and hold is actively stable. Short-term vacation rentals is a little bit more actively stable, in my opinion. In general, real estate investing is actively stable. However, some strategies and choices are more active than others. Uh, I'll give you another couple examples. Amortizing mortgages versus balloons and interest-only loans. If you get an amortizing loan, a loan that if you make all the payments for whatever time period, 15 years or 30 years, it will pay itself off. That is less active than if you get an interest-only loan that has a balloon or you have, um, you know, a a, 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 well, let's just use interest-only loan. So if you have an interest-only loan, at the end of the period of time, you still owe that amount on it. If you don't do anything with it, they're going to foreclose. So it's more active in that way. The other one actually gets paid off. What about buy and hold versus fix and flips? I think we talked about. Or lease options. If you don't put tenant buyers in those properties and kind of keep on them and help them buy the property, or if they don't buy the property, replace it with another tenant buyer who could possibly buy the property, you're going you're gonna to lose the property or you're going to lose money. Um, funding, retirement, cash flow versus appreciation, debt pay down. So in retirement, one of the strategies, we did a whole class on this. I think it was called uh, cash flow versus appreciation where I had two different kind of like avatars and one of them was going to use, one of them was in a market, a real estate market that had more cash flowing properties. Another one was in a real estate market that didn't have very good cash flow, but it was highly appreciating. And so they were going to you know, kind of see if they could fund retirement by through the cash flow on the properties or fund retirement by using the equity they had in their property for appreciation. Well, funding your retirement via cash flow is more passive, still actively passive, but it's still, it's more passive than it is uh, actually, trying to do this with appreciation and debt pay down because with the appreciation and debt pay down, you have to do stuff. You have to either sell properties, we have to do cash out refinances, we have to do stuff in order to get at the money in the property. It's hard to
0: access that. Okay. Those are examples. Any questions on this concept? Does that make sense? All right, cool. Uh, scalability. So, did anyone listen to the class I did
2: on um, real estate investor fire? where I had this slide, but it was a different version of that. It wasn't the class where you guys yelled fire at me. It was the one I did on a webinar. And I talked about all the different stages of fire and the phases of fire, and I broke that out. So this is a slide from that whole class. I'll try to cover it very quickly. But the idea is that there are certain strategies that will get you to certain dollar amounts. So if you think about real estate investing, Real estate investing is remarkably good at getting you to about the, and this is one of those things where there's lots of exceptions and people could argue with me, but about that deca-millionaire level. Okay? Really easy to get you to a million-dollar net worth, relatively easy to get you to this deca-millionaire kind of thing. But if you want to become a 100-millionaire or greater, real estate becomes a lot harder to get you there. okay. Partially because you're limited in the number of loans and the types of loans you can do unless you have exceptional income and exceptional assets to begin with. So it becomes a harder strategy to do that. And what this chart shows, I'll kind of jump ahead to show you what it is, but this breaks down the net worth and like what percentage of it they have in stuff like other assets, mutual funds, stocks, fixed income, managed assets, and real estate is one of them. So it shows you the percentage of their their overall asset base that they have broken out by how much net worth they have. And so when you have a 10K net worth, not a lot of people have much real estate at all because 10K is pretty low, but for the 100K net worth, they have a pretty decent sized real estate um, equity. And then up to this 1 million thing, real estate becomes a relatively significant percentage of that, of their net worth. And then getting up to this 10 million, real estate becomes a pretty significant thing. But then you'll notice over time, real estate actually declines. The, the amount of real estate that you have as a percentage of your net worth actually goes down. And so when you think about scalability, certain strategies are much more likely to get you to the point where uh, you, know, you are scalable. So for example, let's think about this as an example. Is it easier to get to a $1 billion net worth running a flipping business where you're making, you're trying to buy properties, flip them and make money? Are you going to become a billionaire doing that? What do you think? Probably not. Do you think you're, let's even use 10 million. Are you going to get to a $10 million net worth flipping properties and making $25,000, $30,000 a flip? It's going to be hard to get there. Would it be easier to get there if you were buying rental properties, you know, buying $400,000, $500,000 rental properties and acquiring a bunch of those and letting them pay off over time, letting the whole asset base appreciate, letting your loans get paid down if you have loans, getting cash flow on those properties and reinvesting it and acquiring more rentals? Are you more likely to get to a million or $10 million net worth doing that than just doing jobs where you're flipping properties and making twenty five dollars or $30,000 a pop? Can you see how certain strategies are more scalable than others to get to certain levels? Does that make sense? Okay, so in my opinion, um, the buy and hold real estate investing strategy tends to be one of the better scaling real estate investing strategies that there are. Of all the different ones we're gonna cover, especially the ones that are much more active where they're more entrepreneurial, Entrepreneurial buying properties and using it as a wealth building tool is a relatively good one. But even that has limitations. It's, it's really, if you're doing buy and hold, you're much less likely to get there to, to get to like this 100 million or you know billionaire type status if you're doing that. So it's scalable to a point. Really, really good at getting a million to 10 million, in my opinion, okay? Any questions on this? There's, there's another like 10 minutes on this particular chart in uh, that other class, which I'll, maybe I'll put a note in the show notes or something for the recording. Okay, risk exposure. So another way we wanna measure real estate investing strategies is think about how risky they are. And one of the things I like to think about when I think about risk are, what are the risks of doing this particular strategy? So for buy and hold real estate investing, I consider this sort of like a medium risk real estate investing strategy compared to some other ones. There's ones that are much lower risk, there are ones that are much higher. So what risk do you have when you do buy and hold real estate investing? Well, when you buy a property and you're holding it for the long-term, you have a risk that prices will decline during your ownership. Right, property values can go down. Property values can go down while you're acquiring properties. So the first ones you buy may have negative equity, or if you've you've got them free and clear, you may have lost money on them, okay? Uh, You could also have rents decline during ownership. So you thought you were getting X percent return, cash on cash or cap rate, however you're doing your calculation, and now you find that rents have dropped and you're not quite getting that anymore. So that's a risk you can have. Your credit is at risk. If you actually go buy properties using financing and something goes wrong with the property where you have to jettison or something goes wrong with you and you can no longer you know continue to make payments on the property and you lose the properties to foreclosure or short sale or something like that, your credit is at risk for doing the strategy. That is not true with every other strategy. so it's it's a buy and hold strategy risk. You also have the all the typical tenant property management risks, you know, slip and fall. Uh, tenant sues you for you know discriminating against them because you're not following fair housing laws. You know, all those things that you have for doing property management, that is a risk you have for doing this strategy. So I think it's in the moderate, kind of medium range for risk. It's not super, super risky. It's not also the lowest risk. You can argue that there's slightly more risk with short-term rentals, vacation rentals, but this is probably offset by an increase in income. So you're making a trade. So I think short-term rentals probably have a slightly higher risk, Um, but I also would say that short-term rentals have an additional risk, the risk of kind of an additional risk of changing policies. Like we're seeing HOAs and some cities um, kind of change their policies about allowing short-term rentals. So you don't have that risk as much with long-term, you know, year-long lease type tenants. Any questions on risk? Are you seeing the format we're using for these other ones and how this will be helpful to understand if you're considering other strategies, how they all measure up? You seeing that? Is that gonna be helpful? Okay, profit speed. So how quickly do you make money and what size of money do you make at what interval? So you can make a dollar, but is that like a decent amount chunk? So we wanna think about also how quickly it happens and then the magnitude or the size of uh, your profit. So I'm calling this profit speed. And if you've seen this before, this is my uh, return quadrants. This talks about the four different areas you see that you get returns on by owning rental property. And then I also have reserves in there because you tend to own a small return um, on the reserves you keep. Whether you keep them in a savings account, you're getting 1% a year, you keep them in the stock market and you're earning 8% per year. So you do get a return on the reserves you have, but it also drags down the overall return on investment when you kind of like say, I have to have six months or 12 months of reserves for my property you realize that, well, my appreciation needs to take into account the amount I set aside in reserves. I can't not do that calculation, in my opinion, correctly, uh, unless you take into account reserves. So we're thinking about just the return you're getting. There's a return from appreciation, the property value tending to go up over a long period of time. There's a return from debt pay down, the amount you pay down on the loan. If you don't have a loan on it, you don't get this return. If you're paying cash for property, this is zero. So you get these two returns. These two returns are what I call cash later returns. So all the stuff on the left, is the stuff that you get later. Cause you can't usually access appreciation or debt pay down until you either sell the property or you do a cash out refinance. So these ones on the left-hand side are the returns you get later, cash later. The ones on the right are cash now returns. So cash flow, the difference between the rent you're collecting on the property or other income you're collecting on the property minus all of your expenses, including vacancy, taxes, insurance, maintenance, um, your mortgage payments, did I forget any? Basically, it's all those. Okay. So cash flow is the net difference between what you're bringing in and all of the expenses you have in your property. That's cash flow. And then by owning a rental property, you also get tax benefits, which I call it depreciation. I call it cash flow from depreciation, though, when we take the gross amount of depreciation you have and you multiply it by your effective tax rate to give you an estimate of how much actual cash you will receive back on your taxes, either in your monthly paycheck or your weekly paycheck from your job. If you decide to change your exemptions, or at the end of the year when you file your taxes where you get a big lump sum, you'll get some money back. I call that cash flow from depreciation. The ones on the right are cash now. You get the cash flow at whatever interval you're collecting rents minus your expenses. So, usually monthly, unless you're doing some type of short term rental, then it's weekly or wherever they do the payouts for your, your kind of platform that you're using for that. And then the tax benefits, you can collect those with your paychecks every week, every two weeks, every month, or at the end of the year when you do your tax return but it's not like you have to wait a long time like appreciation debt pay down. So these are more cash now, these are cash later. When you have regular buy and hold rental properties, you tend not to get these short term, but these tend to be the bigger numbers. No, your appreciation on a property tends to be larger than your cash flow, just in general. It's not always that way. Uh, And then your debt pay down tends to increase over time. As you pay down a 30 year mortgage, just gets larger over time, but it tends to be a bigger number too. Then your cash flow, although as interest rates rise, this gets smaller. I wanna point that out. So, cash flow and tax benefits, these tend to be relatively smaller numbers, unless you're doing a free and clear, and then your cash flow number should be much larger. But you're doing these, these tend to be uh, smaller numbers, but they tend to be more uh, quicker. So, as far as like profit speed, with buy and hold real estate investing, you typically can start seeing cash flow within 30 days. You buy the property, you acquire it, you put the tenant in there, it's relatively quick. Rents and security deposits are typically paid in advance. So a lot of times someone pays rents at the first of the month for the month that's coming up. They're not paying it in arrears. They're paying it in advance. So you're gonna get that up front. And usually you require a security deposit before they move in. So you'll see some money up front. Short-term rentals and using property manager can slightly delay the time to producing cash flow. If you've got a property manager in there, it takes them a while for them to receive the money, do all the accounting, and then pay you out on the 15th or the 30th or whenever they decide to pay you out. So there's an additional delay when you do that. Then whatever platform you use for your short-term rental, I'm sure there's some type of delay in there too. It's not like they're doing the deposit and giving you the money same day. Okay. I don't do short-term rentals, but that's my understanding. Anyone do short-term rentals here? Okay. Uh, Usually a percentage return of amount invested, cash on cash, uh, return on investment, or cap rate. So when you're thinking about like the order of magnitude, you know, a lot of people throw around numbers like, you know, I'm getting a 5% cash on cash or 10% cash on cash, or In some extreme cases, maybe they're doing a 100% cash on cash return on investment. That's the number that you are getting on the investment size, the amount of cash you put in the deal. Or cap rate is the return you're getting if you did not have a mortgage on the property, but after all of your other expenses. That's what cap rate is. Okay. I talked about cash flow from depreciation. You also typically see the wealth building through the stuff on the left. The appreciation and debt pay down portions tend to be your kind of wealth building part of the profit speed for buy and hold. Any questions on this one? Awesome. Finding deals. So how do you find buy and hold deals? I kind of break it up into two categories. One of the most common, most likely ways you're going to find deals. And then the kind of like more unusual, but still common enough that I think I should mention them sort of things. And that's these. How do you find deals? I use an example when I taught the real estate investing strategies class where I talked about all the strategies. This idea of looking for an alligator. You... It is possible for you to find an alligator if someone recently flushed one down the toilet and you happen to be in the sewer in New York City. You could possibly catch an alligator down there, right? You could, you could find one. This is like the unusual exceptional case. But if you're looking for an alligator and the alligator is representative of the type of deal you're looking for, if you really want to find an alligator, you're probably more likely to find one if you go to Florida. And probably more specifically, if you're looking for alligators, you might want to look in the Everglades. Okay, so if you think about deals and where you're gonna find them, think about this alligator story. So where are you most likely? What's the Everglades version of buy and hold? Multiple listing service. That's the overwhelming majority of properties. It has the largest number of properties available. You're typically gonna find them in there. And this could be, if you're doing commercial properties, it could be something like LoopNet or something like that. Or it could be just your local MLS if you're buying single family homes, duplexes, triplex, fourplexes, and that's what's normal in your marketplace. Okay, so MLS is one. And the next one is this group of for sale by owners. And I break for sale by owners down into two different groups. For sale by owner is a seller who's selling the property without the help of a real estate agent. They're selling it for sale by owner. And there are two different kind of main categories. Category number one is somebody who is actively selling their property for sale by owner. They are trying to sell. They put up an ad, they've put it on Zillow or what other marketplaces they have. They put a sign in the yard. They're actively trying to sell their property. That is an actively marketed for sale by owner. But then there's the other group. They're the hidden for sale by owners. It's a seller selling without the help of a real estate agent, but maybe they are not actively marketing their property. Maybe it's sort of like if you approach them and said, hey, would you like to sell your property? They'd be like, yes, I would, but I wasn't otherwise trying to sell it. I didn't have it marketed for sale. I didn't have a sign in the yard. I didn't have it up on Zillow. Maybe you had to send out marketing in order to find them. Maybe you were at networking and you did it but it's some other way where they're hidden and you had to find them another way. And usually those other ways are either through marketing or networking. Those are the most common strategies for finding properties for buy and hold. Unusual methods, wholesalers. Not that a wholesaler can't find you a deal, it's just the number of wholesalers that there are out there and the number of wholesale deals that they're finding is just a really small portion, right? So you may be able to go find a wholesale deal. However, it's like, if you want the best selection, could you go down to the local you know, gas station and get something that you need? But if you wanna have a selection of 30 different versions of that thing, you're probably not going to the gas station. So the gas station is sort of like a wholesaler. Maybe they have one, but the MLS is sort of like the supermarket where now you have a whole shelf full that you can pick different types and you get to choose whichever one is best
0: and you can make a selection, okay? So unusual methods, wholesalers. Any questions on finding Julius, microphone here? Are you talking about Redfin, Zillow? Uh, do they come under MLS? So Redfin or Zillow
2: could actually include both of these. So it could be that the real estate agent's properties are listed from the MLS on Redfin or Zillow, but also the for sale by owners can also list their properties as a for sale by owner on Redfin or Zillow. So it could be both. So that's sort of like an aggregator for where you're doing it. But ultimately, the source is either the MLS, all the agent
0: stuff, or for sale by owner, actively marketed in that case. Right? Okay, cool. Any other questions? Yeah, John. I've got a two-part question. On the for sale by owner, is that typically, do they want more
2: money or less money than if they were going through a real-
1: also the second part of my question would be
0: risk. Yep. Um, if I use a, re- a realtor, um, you guys cover all, all the hidden stuff. If I'm dealing directly with a homeowner, it seems a little more risky. Yeah. So really, really good questions. here's just put down for a second. So awesome questions. So the first thing about price, it's all over the place, I would say. I would say that the for sale by owners I've seen, some of
2: them are priced high because they wanna get all the money, right? They're gonna price it with whatever a realtor would have gotten, maybe even a little bit more, because they think that their property is better than all the other ones that sold. And they haven't had a real estate agent tell them, that hey, it's not reality to get you know, $600,000 for this $500,000 property. they are like, well, I think I can get 600, so I'm gonna list it for 600. So you could get some of that. Um, or you could get them not knowing the value. A lot of times we see that with an out-of-the-area owner who knows that their parents bought the property for $250,000 and they can't imagine in their mind that it's worth $500,000 now. And they live in another state and they're just like, "Is we can get three hundred, dollars that's awesome. And it needs a lot of work. And so it goes both ways. And-, and the real estate agent ones, there are real estate agents that help sellers who are otherwise motivated. They want a quick sale and they realize it needs a lot of work and they're not trying to be super aggressive about getting every last penny out of the deal, so you could find those. But I think the overwhelming majority of the deals listed in the MLS are retail deals. I mean, they're priced for retail sale. the The real estate agent is representing the seller, and they're trying to help them as a fiduciary, you know, get the the best offer for them, which in many cases is the highest priced offer that will net them the most. And so I think that that is true. But there is that five percent, ten percent of those that are also good values, and sometimes a full price deal. Especially for buy and hold is still a great deal. Like you can go buy a property, pay full retail price for it, and it gets you the cash flow economics, the cash flow returns that you want on it, because they're thinking price and you're thinking income, right? And not every property is considered that way. Um, and you're right, I think about the risk, too. I think real estate agent can mitigate your risk in a couple of ways. Number one, through knowledge about like how to do stuff correctly and all that other stuff. But then there's also an additional insurance insurance layer in there, too. Because most real estate agents in most states, and I'm aware of, at least in Colorado, I know this is true. They're required to have errors and emissions insurance to kind of protect you in case they do something stupid and screw up, right? So I think that there's an additional layer in there. Does that mean that you shouldn't do a for sale by owner deal? No. I, I think that there's a, you know, there's a reasonable amount of risk that you think there's nothing without risk, right? Like we go out, we drive through town. I mean, you could be doing everything you're supposed to do. You're completely sober, you're driving on the right side of the road, you're doing the speed limit, and person next to you is storing a line of cocaine and they just had a six-pack and they're driving all over the line, they're spanking the kids and having a cheeseburger all at the same time, you did everything right. But it's still risky for you, right? There's nothing that's without risk. Is that a reasonable risk? I mean, the chance of it happening to you is really low, but there's risk in everything, including buying for a I including buying something from the MLS. I think there's a small amount of risk in there, especially in markets where you know we've seen we're coming off like a year of, what I would consider to be extreme seller market where the sellers are in the driving seat. They're setting, you know, these demands where you've got 20 offers coming in and people are waiving inspection. They're waiving appraisal. I mean, you're voluntarily taking on additional risk just buying in that particular type of market. So I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's universally that if I had to like handicap it, I would say there's probably a little bit more risk with for sale by owner, but it's not like ridiculously large amount in my opinion. And as far as finding deals, I think you can find them in both spots. Um, and I think you can find overpriced properties in both spots. I think you have sellers who are, you know, they're in the driver's seat and they're demanding that their real estate agent listed for way above what, they, what it's even worth and what the real estate agent is recommending. You see that on the in, inside the MLS with properties that are just languishing and sitting there, right? And then you also see stuff yeah. in the, um, in the uh, you know, for sale by owner market where people are really, really high or really, really low. You know, there's jokes when I teach like the off market deal finding class where sellers are saying, you know, my property is worth 50 or hundred thousand dollars more than it's that it's really worth because that's their dream price and they're not basing it on reality. So I hope I answered your question, but yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if the,
1: the one that I emailed you about the for sale by owner, I think it's priced too high based on comps in the area. And I'm wondering if it's because they know that houses are going for more than asking price, Yeah, but if they had someone listing it for them, because Agents don't generally increase it that much because they know they're going to get the higher price, right? Is there
2: something to that? There's one strategy as a real estate agent. When you're listing a property for sale, one of the ways to do this, and there's lots of different opinions on this, but one of the strategies a lot of real estate agents would recommend is, hey, listen, let's not list it for this much higher price. Let's list it based on what we think it would actually appraise for. Because if you go ahead and list it for, 20000 or 50000 or whatever it is above what it would appraise for. And then they go and they try to buy it and they still have their appraisal contingency in there and it doesn't appraise, it's a renegotiation. So a lot of the buyers then are come back and say, look, you had it listed for 600, only appraised for 580. I think we need to negotiate this. What you're trying to get a buyer to do is you're trying to get enough buyers, at least this is one of the strategies, but as a real estate agent, you're trying to get enough of the buyers to come in at 580, which would be supported by the actual other comps for appraisals, get it to appraise for 580, but get enough buyers saying, this is a deal, it's listed for like what it would appraise for, which might seem a little bit low in the crazy market, get multiple people offering and maybe get them to say, listen, as long as it appraises for, four, for 580, I will then make up the difference to 600. And you want to get that offer because I think that's a stronger offer for the seller because they can get them to then make up that difference so you're not renegotiating. So there's some strategy to that. You know, who knows where the market will be in six months and that may not come up again, but. That's historically how we've looked at that. Does that help you?
0: Okay. Where's my clicker? Anyone know where my clicker went? Oh, here it is. Yeah, I was getting some water when John was asking this question. All right, cool. No questions on finding deals. We're good?
2: Cool. So how do you analyze a buy and hold deal? Well, it's this spreadsheet, the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet. That is my modestly named spreadsheet that I made. Uh, But basically you enter in all the details about the deal. You know, your ARV, your purchase price, seller concessions, uh, down payment percentage, closing costs, rent-ready costs, interest rate, loan term, if you have PMI, all the stuff about that, monthly rent and other income, vacancy rate, property taxes, property insurance, HOA dues, utilities, other expenses, maintenance, all the stuff that you'd normally do. And then it actually calculates all the stuff you need to know about this. And you can override any of the numbers as well. And it will tell you, you're primarily looking for most buy and hold investors. You're primarily looking at your cash on cash return on investment if you're getting a loan or your cap rate if you're not getting a loan. Okay. So you can go download a copy of that spreadsheet. I'll put the link in the show notes for those who listen to the recording. And it's on the screen for you guys here in the room. Any questions? Everyone have the spreadsheet? Anyone not have the spreadsheet yet? Okay. You guys should have it. Okay, good. All right, market conditions. I I assume there's no questions on this, right? There's gonna be whole classes on analyzing deals, which I probably, I mean, I've already done out through August or whatever it is, but I probably need to add those. Anyone want a deal analysis class? Like actually walking through examples. Okay, at least one person. Oh, two. All right, cool. So no questions on that before we move on. Cool. So market conditions. So if you're doing buy and hold, and it seems obvious, it'll seem a little less obvious, I think, with some other strategies, but what are the market conditions you typically wanna see if you're buying properties, and holding on to them forever. Well, ideally, markets with good cash flow. There are some markets where it's really, really, really hard to get them to have positive cash flow. I mean, they're like a million dollar properties that might be renting for two thousand dollars a month. It's really hard to make the economics work on this. okay? So you want a market ideally that has good economics with cash flow, and markets where you have strong appreciation and strong rent appreciation, where the property values are going up and rents are going up. You don't want to be buying in a market where there's a mass exodus. And it's causing a glut of houses on the market and people are chasing the price to the bottom just to get their sold before all the other ones get sold. And so the prices are dropping and maybe there's there's so many houses for rent that the rent prices are doing the similar thing where they're trying to get lower and lower rent just to get them occupied because better to get $600 a month than zero, okay? So ideally you want a market that has a lot of demand where prices are going up and rents are going up because that's really where you get your long-term wealth building from with buy and hold. Then you also want cash flow. Market challenges, markets with significant negative cash flow with reasonable down payments. You know, in most cases, I can make almost any property cash flow if you buy cash, right? If you don't have any financing on it, all you got to do is overcome taxes and insurance and maintenance on the property. And so that's a pretty low bar for most properties. However, then you start saying, okay, yeah, I I could buy anything with cash. But really, what I want to do is I want to look at the top 5% or 10% of the market and I want to select quality. Where I get a good return on my money. And so then you start selecting based on the best cash flow you can get, not just will it cash flow. And that's one of the problems. We'll probably talk about it when we do, you know, some of these other like creative financing or, or times when you buy from a wholesaler. The problem with buying from wholesalers and for buying creatively, where you're doing marketing and you're getting sellers to contact you is selection. It may not be a property that you would otherwise want to select. Where if you go into the MLS, you get your choice of everything. You may decide, hey, everything is not what I want and I'm going to hold off and wait till something else better comes along. But at least you get a wide range of things to analyze and select and decide if that's something I'm going to buy or not. There's a lot of times with like putting out marketing and getting sellers calling you or deals coming into you. It's like you don't control which sellers call you. You can control it by selecting where you advertise to a certain degree, but you may still get a property that you don't want. And so you still have to say no and select the ones that you do want. Um, and then lastly, markets with no or negative appreciation. Um, there are markets where, you, you know, you'll you'll go see a post on a, a you know, a, a very popular real estate investing forum or something. And you'll be like, hey, look, you know, this deal is, you know, this, this you go look at a post from 10 years ago and they're talking about, you know, $100,000 property in a certain city. And then you fast forward, you find another post from, you know, 10 years later and it's like the same $100,000 properties are selling in that same city. So you've had essentially zero appreciation over that decade. So you got to watch out for that. You want to be investing in markets that have appreciation for long-term wealth building. You can just cash flow, but I think that you want the benefit. If you're going to go after a market, if, you're gonna, if you have any market to choose from, why not choose one that both has cash flow and you're going to get some wealth building through appreciation and debt payment,
0: or in rent appreciation. Okay. So no questions on this? Everyone got it? Accessibility or availability.
2: So in many markets, there are plentiful deals you could select from the MLS. So then it becomes a matter of saying, okay, there's a hundred that would work. Now let me find the top 10 of those hundred or the top five of those hundred to really dig down and decide what I'm gonna do. In other markets, it might be challenging to find any positive cash flowing properties except with significant down payments. I think we've been seeing in our local market here, we've been seeing a, a, a move toward this. There was a time in our marketplace where you could find a good quality product, product you know, a good co- quality property that with 20% down would have positive cash flow. It's much, much harder to do that now because prices have gone up a lot in the last five years. Interest rates in the last six months have gone crazy, like doubled, you know, 3% to 6%. Rents have gone up, but not quite as much as property prices and interest rates. So, it's getting harder and harder to find a property that would positive cash
0: flow with just 20% down in our marketplace. Okay. And I think you'll find that in other markets too,
2: especially with the same characteristics. I mean, we see massive price appreciation, not just in Northern Colorado, but overall in the nation. And interest rates are up all over the place. Yeah, Dwayne. How
1: far behind do taxes
2: usually follow that when they do assessments? Is yeah. that something that? That's a great question because you're right. I mean, if if property values have gone up and they're doing the reassessment every two years, which I think is very, very common, at least around here, that's the norm, right? Every two years we see a reassessment. So they're gonna use the new property value and they've got their kind of like tax, whatever they call it, mills or however they calculate taxes. They're gonna use those times whatever their new assessed value is and your property tax are gonna go up. So it's just sort of like two year stair step going up with that. Yeah, yeah, so it's definitely gonna impact that. Which is another reason why you probably shouldn't use just the, the last year's property taxes as your estimate, unless you're prepared for that shock. That's another a shock for that class, right? You know, buying a property using the old tax assessment only to find out that six months from now, there's gonna be a new tax assessment It's gonna change. Same thing we see with new construction properties, right? I mean, you've seen this where, you know, sometimes we get really lucky where you buy a property and you're still paying taxes on vacant land, and it takes three months, six months, a year, whatever it takes for the county to come around and say, okay, now we're reassessing your property. It's no longer vacant land. It's got this $500,000 property on there. And now property taxes aren't $47 for the year, they're $4,700 for
0: the year. Okay? So that's a big difference. Uh, Interest rates may be a significant factors,
2: whether properties will cash flow or not. And the other thing about accessibility availability Um, is verify that you can use your property as a short-term vacation rental before buying it. You don't want to assume that you can. You want to check with the city. You want to check with the county. You want to check with the HOA at a minimum. And there may be additional municipalities
0: that are limiting you. Those are the three that come to mind. Any questions on that? Cool. Using retirement
2: accounts. There are some real estate investing strategies that you can use your retirement accounts to invest with. Uh, buy and hold real estate investing is one of them. You can use your retirement account, your self directed retirement account, to buy real estate with for buy and hold. Um, a lot of times it requires special financing. So, um, most of the time it's going to be a portfolio loan, and the portfolio lender is going to require a much larger down payment, usually about 35%. There are some ways to structure where um, you're getting the loan and someone else is partnering with you, go see the partnerships class where we talk about that. But you could structure an LLC with some portfolio lenders who obviously don't see this as a kind of like good way to do it. But you can come in and be the loan partner on a deal for an LLC and only put 20% down um, in order to get some of those products. But if you're buying it just with your self-directed IRL, self-directed 401k, in most of those cases, because it can't be a recourse loan, they're going to require 35% down. Uh, the interest rate's going to be a little bit higher. Um, and they're usually ARMS. Um, sometimes they'll do a 15-year fixed rate mortgage, but that's also gonna hurt your cash flow because it's the 15-year amortization schedule makes your cash flow that makes your monthly payment higher, uh, which means your cash flow is gonna be worse. So just realize that might not be ideal. And then the other thing to think about too is if you're trying to do financial independence, retire early below when you can technically start taking money out of your retirement accounts, realize that if you're doing investing inside these accounts. It's not like you can access that money. You can't, accept, you can't like collect the cash flow from the property that you have owned by your self-directed IRA or self-directed 401k. You have to leave that money in there until you can legally withdraw it, unless you wanna pay the taxes and the penalties to get it out, okay? So realize that it's, if you're looking to do this for retiring at 45 or whatever you're trying to do, that's potentially problematic. And you'll need to come up with a bridge solution of some sort uh, to do that. And there, there is a class, I really need to add this to the schedule, I talked about this in that same um, uh, fire for real estate investors class. I talked about this idea of, I, I used to call it coasting into retirement, but I don't want to confuse it with uh, coast fire, which is something completely different. So I, I think I renamed it chillaxing into retirement. It's this concept of, you know, you have enough money to bridge you technically qualifying as financially independent and you're sort of living off of your savings, not at a safe withdrawal rate, kind of living off of your savings, but like depleting your savings to get to the point where you then qualify for fire, where your financial independence number may take you a year or two or three for either a property to pay off or cash flow to increase or something else to happen. And you're sort of like rapidly depleting another resource that you have to sort of bridge you to that point. And there's probably a full day class I need to do on that. So I don't think I could do it justice in two hours. So is anyone interested in that class? Should I do that? Just one person? Two? Okay. Maybe I'll do something like that. Uh, okay. So I talked about all those. Any other questions on can you use your retirement account? Is this helpful? Like the the kind of format of going through it sort of like this? Yeah. Okay. I'm glad. All right. Quantitative analysis. So when I, when I originally did the real estate investing strategies class, I, I gave you like a warning up front that I, I could have easily decided to, I, I did qualitative then. I kind of like looked at the characteristics and how they work and what they're their strategies were, but I could have just as easily done all math and showed you, okay, look, if you do buy and hold, um, this is what the numbers look like for you doing it. If you do creative financing, this is what the numbers look like for you doing it. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this series, I wanted to do a deep dive with all the different ways to measure and look at it, but I also wanted to do a quantitative analysis. And so what I'm going to do here for the series is I, I picked a, an avatar, a, a prototypical person, and I, I kind of have a story around them. And then I'm going to show you, okay, if this particular person, in this case, it's a group of people, a husband and wife, if this particular group of people, this is kind of like partnership, this, um, what do you call a couple, this couple decides to go ahead and utilize the buy and hold strategy, this is what the numbers look like for them. And I'm not going to go into crazy detail where I, you know, drill into this is what cash looks like, this is what their net worth looks like, this is, what... I only use the metric of, um, their ability to achieve the minimum target monthly income for retirement. So when do they actually become financially independent? And so I use that as a metric, as one measuring stick. And as we do today with a couple variations and creative financing and subject to um, and um, lease options and wholesaling, I will show you how doing that strategy actually gets them to fire not and how long it takes them. So that you can see relative sizes of how quick. If you're gonna do, you know, fix and flips or whatever it is, how quickly does that get you to the point where you're going to be financially independent? Does that make sense? Okay. So that being said, how well does buy and hold perform toward achieving financial independence? So what I'm going to look at is three different scenarios, putting 15% down and 15% down, it requires that you have private mortgage insurance. Private mortgage insurance is insurance that you pay as the buyer to protect the lender in case you default. So they say, look, I'd rather you put 20% down. However, if you really twist my arm, I will let you put 15% down, but it's more risky for me. So what I'm gonna require is if I let you put 15% down, you need to pay this third party that if you then default, then they will make, whole, make me whole for the difference, okay? So they're paying, you're paying as the buyer, a third party insurance company, a private mortgage insurance company to protect the lender for them being silly enough to let you do a loan for 15% down. Does that make sense? The way I worded it that way? Okay. So when you do 15% down, you're gonna have PMI. And if you look on your worksheet, sorry, Ben, you got, you got volunteered. I should've just taken a sheet, huh? Um, so on your worksheet here, you'll see this 15% down column. And I show you the interest rates highlighted, but then a few columns down from that, it also tells you your monthly PMI or monthly MI for mortgage insurance. And so it shows you that the monthly MI is $150 a month for the 15% down one, and it's zero for the 20% down and 25% down. You don't have mortgage insurance when you put 20% down or more, okay? So 15% down with PMI, 20% down, 25% down. We're gonna look at those scenarios at how quickly you can achieve financial independence using those. And I'm also gonna do one with short-term rentals. Now for short-term rentals, I assume that you can get significantly higher income by doing a short-term rental. Otherwise, why bother, right? It's more work. But if you can, you could get significantly more income, but there probably are some more expenses, right? There's like all those extra fees for the platform and marketing and you know, maybe keeping the, like, the, the, like, the disposable goods, like soaps and all that other stuff. So there are more expenses and the cleaning person and all that other stuff. So there are more expenses of running short-term rental, but there's also more income. But net, it's more, right? Like I, I think you wouldn't do it if the net was less. And so I've arbitrarily picked the number and you may say to me, you know, James, your number seems crazy low, too conservative, or your number seems crazy high, too too aggressive. And I wanna be able to change the numbers. You'll be able to change the numbers. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll let you guys know what the link is and you'll be able to go and see, and I'm gonna do it for every city. So those would be 300 cities. You'll be able to see numbers for your city. And then if the numbers I use for your city are, are slightly different, you'll be able to change those too. But I will start with reasonable assumptions for all cities. Then you'll be able to go in and say, look, you know, it's not 25% more than what we're getting with regular rents for doing short-term rentals. It's actually 50% more, 100% more um, net after all expenses. And so you can go change those assumptions and then see how it impacts whether or not they achieve financial independence. For tonight, I have the assumptions up here in a second. I did use 25% more. And I also increased maintenance on it as well. So you'll see how that plays out. Um, I also mentioned here, in many cases, there's usually more work involved for short-term rentals. So part of the increased income you get is your labor. You should think about that in terms of dollars per hour. So the differential you're getting above and beyond the work you would need to do as a regular long-term tenant in the property, you need to think about that as, okay, I also need to figure out that I'm also putting in an extra X number of hours, five hours a month or whatever it is. And so I need to take that money out and calculate what that means to me. You may be willing to do that though, because you're saying, look, if I can get this extra cash flow, I, I don't mind doing the five hours. That's worthwhile for me. Okay. So it's up to you to decide that. So any questions on this before I start going into some numbers? I'm, I'm moving toward numbers. I'm going to show you my assumptions here. Any questions? Okay. All right. So financial independence. So earlier this year, I did a class. I think it was called, I don't know, financial independence, retire early budget. And, and in that thing, I did a walkthrough where I walked you through how to do your own budget to determine what your minimum target monthly income in retirement is. That's like a lean fire, for those of you that are kind of familiar with that concept, or your ideal target monthly income in retirement. That's sort of like your fat fire or full fire number, okay? So I, I walked you through, you kind of walked through all your different expenses, your mortgage taxes, insurance, HOA, and your own personal property, vehicle payments, all that stuff that you have there. And then I calculate your amount that you need in order to be able to achieve financial independence based on your expenses for kind of two different groups. So I'll put a link to the, be able to download the spreadsheet, maybe watch the video on there. So you'll wanna know your number, but I use for them, I think $5,000, which I'll show you the assumptions for in a second here. But in order to achieve financial independence, it really consists of three parts. So how do you know if someone has enough assets coming in to support them in retirement? there are really three inputs for this. Input number one is passive income coming from things like social security, pensions, or annuities. Those are the three most common, but it's all the passive income you've got coming in from that. The second one is any cash flow you have from your rental properties, net of all expenses. So this is not just rent minus mortgage payment, it's rent minus taxes, minus insurance, minus maintenance, minus vacancy, minus mortgage payment, all of the expenses on your property have to be subtracted out. And then that number is the cash flow you can use to determine whether or not you qualify as financially independent. And then the third one is any money invested, not the equity in your property, that's already being included somewhere, but any money you have invested in stocks or bonds or mutual funds or things of that nature times whatever you believe to be a safe withdrawal rate. Safe withdrawal rate is the amount of money in theory that you can safely remove from your investments each year and in theory, not run out of money, okay? Usually it's around 4%. Some people more conservatively will use something like 3% or 3.25. Um, the guy who came up with the rule before we saw this massive uptick in inflation had came out publicly and said, it's actually over 5% now, which I always scratched my head and said, that seems really aggressive, but I mean, what do I know? Um, but if you look back at historical data, there was the, um, the 4% safe withdrawal, rate study by the three professors from Trinity University. They did a bunch of back testing on historical data with the stock market and bonds. And they came and said that with a very high probability of success, very low probability of failure, that taking 4% of the amount of assets you have invested in stocks and bonds at different ratios, they did a whole table. So you can go look at the the report if you want to. I think it's called the Trinity study. Um, But they said that 4% is a relatively reasonable number to use based on historical data. Okay, so the three things, it's passive income from social security, pensions and annuities, that's number one, any net cash flow from rentals, and number three, your yearly safe withdrawal rate multiplied by the amount you have invested in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, things like that. The sum of all three of those, if the money coming out from your cash flow, your passive income, and that safe withdrawal rate, if that exceeds the amount you need in order to live, then you are technically financial independent mathematically. Does that make sense? So in order to see if somebody qualifies for this, We're gonna use any social security they have. So if they go late enough, where they're old enough then to have social security, that will count for us, okay? And I did a calculation based on their social security and I think I started them at age 21. Try to give them a really long runway with this, okay? Any net cash flow from rentals. So if they're buying rentals in these scenarios, then the cash flow they have from the rentals after all their expenses counts. And then any money that they have in their bank account that's not being used for down payments or whatever, we're using a 4% safe withdrawal rate for that, and that counts as well. So the three of these things will count to determine whether or not they've achieved financial independence, and I'll tell you what month they achieved that minimum, financial, minimum target monthly income and retirement to be financially independent. Does that make sense? Did I confuse anyone? All right, cool. All right, so all of these assumptions are changeable if you just copy the scenario to your account. Um, they're married. They're both 21 years old. They recently graduated from college, and they're working in a technology department of a large healthcare business. Might sound familiar to someone in this room. Uh, They have total of $10,000 saved up. Okay, so they're not starting from zero. They've got 10K. Uh, They earn $72,000 a year combined. So $36,000 each. Does anyone have a problem with that number? They think it's too low? It's probably low. I'm looking at someone who works in that field. Yeah, it's very low. Okay, so. I'm trying to be conservative, though, right? Like, I don't if I come in here and I use, you know, well, they, everyone makes $200,000 a year. People are like, whoa, James, no one makes $200,000 a year. So I get it from either way. So here's how I worked it out, though. I said, okay, look, Mc, McDonald's is hiring at like $16 an hour for us, right? I mean, I think Qdoba, the burrito place I go to, they have signs in their door. They're hiring like entry level at 15. I was like, 18 seems like a relatively low bar, right? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it just seems like crazy, but... It doesn't seem that far off or, and that's $18 an hour working 2000 hours a year, $36,000 a year each is how I got there. Or you can say, look, if they're really as motivated to achieve financial independence as I, as you say they are, then, you know, 2000 hours a year is like part-time work. In my opinion, I mean, there's other people that's going to, they're going to be offended by that. Right. I'm going to get hate mail, you know, like oh, I can't work more than $2,000 a year. I mean, 2000 hours, that's like the first six months of the year for me. I mean, I know there's some business owners in here that they're like, yeah, 2000, 2,000 hours. Yeah, that's that's easy, right? But I'm gonna get hate mail, I'm sure. But I use 2,000 times $18 an hour to get $36,000 a year for each one. I think that's a reasonable number for a lot of folks. And so I'll try to use these same assumptions across all the different strategies to compare them. So you'll be able to see more of a, as close to an apples to apples comparison as you can be knowing that you're comparing different things, okay? Um they're, they're, this may be hard for you guys to believe. They're saving $1,000 a month before they buy any houses. Okay, so between the two of them, they're saving uh, $12,000 a year on a $72,000 income. That's pretty aggressive. But they're motivated to achieve financial independence. In fact, I say they're obsessed about achieving financial independence so they can retire early. They want to fire. They want to find their best path to financial independence together. They're both taking Social Security at age 67. That's what I modeled it at. And Social Security was estimated based on them working until the full age of 67. You guys all know that if you stop working earlier than 67, your amount of benefits actually goes down for Social Security though, right? You guys know that, right? Like If you don't put in enough, then you don't get the whole thing. It goes down. Okay. So I've assumed though, incorrectly, that they've worked till 67. So, so if they get to the point where Social Security kicked in and it matters to them, that will be a factor. But if it's before that, it really doesn't matter anyway because they've then achieved financial independence without social security. Okay. Any questions on the changeable assumptions? Because you can go in and change these. You're like, hey, look, 72,000 a year is crazy, James. I don't know where you got them from. Nothing? Okay. This is the worksheet you have, the loan types. I'm just pointing out that when they do the 15% down loan, I'm using 6.75%. That's what I got yesterday when I called my lender as the interest rate for a 15% down loan. And in order to do that, they had to pay two points to get that loan. They wouldn't they wouldn't give us a par rate. They wouldn't give us a rate where you didn't have to pay any points, okay? And if you're doing 20% down at 6.625, there's, there's two points for that as well, but there's no PMI. And then if you put 25% down at 6.5%, that's par, there's no points required in order to get that rate, and there's no PMI on that one. Okay, so that's the interest rates I'm gonna use. If they were, you know, when we cover Nomad next week, we'll be looking at these conventional loans, and you'll see the interest rates for those and what they are. For example, putting five percent down is five point five percent versus six point seven five or six point six two five or six point five. This is why having put putting only five percent down starts to look attractive, is the interest rate is so much better? We'll cover that. We do Nomad. Any questions on this? Where I go on the next slide? Okay, cool. More changeable assumptions. I modeled this out for 60 years. So if for some reason they don't achieve financial independence, it's possible they achieve it after 60 years. Okay, so 720 months, 60 years. So they will be 81 at the end of this modeling. Um, Based on their income, I think I looked it up. It should be about a 17.85% effective income tax rate. That's what I've estimated it to be. I'm assuming a 3% inflation rate over a very long period of time, guys. 3% is reasonable. I know we've seen crazy numbers recently, but... Look out, long time in history. 3% seems right about there. Uh, 5.5% mortgage interest rate for the owner occupants, but they're not doing owner occupants except in some examples here, but they're doing the investor rates, which are listed on your spreadsheet. They have a 4% safe withdrawal rate number. They have $5,000 minimum target monthly income and retirement. So they're trying to get to the point where they have $5,000 a month in passive income from those three sources in order to be considered financially independent. And I do adjust for inflation. So it's $5,000 today, but in the future, it may be seven or eight or 9,000, depending on what time it is, okay? And why did I pick 5,000 when they're making $6,000 a month? Because they're saving 1,000. So I want them to be at the same level of lifestyle, not at the same income. So they're not saving $1,000 anymore. They're only saving nothing because they've already achieved financial independence then. So we're trying to get them to the point where they've replaced their standard of living, what they're actually living on. And I've also said, Hey, look, when do they get to the point where they can live a $10,000 a month lifestyle, which I don't even think I showed you numbers for that today, but I do run that math and show you when they've, when they're earning twice as much. Okay. Any questions on these changeable assumptions? You can change all these too. Okay. So for the property, what kind of property are they buying? So here's the assumptions for the property. It's going to be a $375,000 property value. And it goes up at a rate of 3% per year. So it's keeping pace with inflation. It's not going up faster than inflation. It's not going up slower than inflation. It's pretty neutral. We're gonna do three different down payment scenarios. I'm gonna do a 15% down, a 20% down, a 25% down one. And I'll show you the results from each. With the 15% down, there's PMI. I told you that. Uh, 1% of the purchase price in closing costs when they purchase. So they're gonna have some fees for getting the loan. In addition to that, for the 15% down and the 20% down loans, there are two additional points in order to get the loan. You have to wait. Is that, is that something that's common? What's With that? 15% down? There, yeah, there's a, two, there's a 15% down non-owner occupant program. No oh, points. Is that common? No, it, it, was, it was unusual because we couldn't get them to quote us something in par rate. So they're saying, look, we're not even going to offer that. If you want to get this rate, you got to pay at least two points in order to get it. So it's just a, a can, kind of condition of our normal market right now. And you may be able to go to another lender where they'll say, you know, it's not 6.75 or whatever it is. It's, it's you know, 7%, but it's par. They may come back and say that to you. And so each lender is a little bit different. This is one lender I called. There was
1: a lender that I talked to said, told me that between 25% down and 15%
2: down, there was only a quarter of an interest rate change. Yeah, it, it definitely is in that range. Okay. Sometimes it's more than that. Sometimes it's less. Okay.
1: And then also, but- is there... A- is there an equation to figure out upfront PMI?
2: Like no, you, you no, just there's, there's a whole two hour class on PMI and I go over all the factors and it's a um, it's a calculation for them. And there's a lot of different variables in it,
0: including how many people are on the loan, your credit score, price of the property. There's a whole bunch of factors. Yep. All right, cool. Uh, no seller concessions. They couldn't get the seller to give them any money toward closing costs.
2: Uh, Interest rates, I already talked what those are, 6.75 for the 15% down, 6.625 for the 20, 6.5 for the 25% down, and the 15% has PMI. Uh, Doing 30-year loans, 360-month loan term, uh, we assume $2,600 per month in rent, but rent increases at a rate of 3% per year. So rent is also keeping pace with inflation. It's not going up faster than inflation. It's not going up slower than inflation. So property price and rents are going up at the same rate. Uh, 3% of the monthly income is assumed for vacancy. So we're assuming that they're doing a really good job with property management, and that they are starting, you know, 60 to 90 days ahead of the property becoming vacant to make sure that they have minimal vacancy on their property. 10% of the monthly income is assumed to be maintenance. Uh, I'm assuming 0.75% of the value of the property each year is the property tax rate. So that's about $2,800 per year in property taxes at the start, and it changes as property values increase. So around here, that number doesn't seem to be that low or it doesn't seem to be that crazy. In other markets, they're hearing that and they are be like, yeah, per month is the rate for that. Or they may be like, whoa, that seems really, really high. So tax rates vary considerably across the country. And you can change this. 0.4% of the value of the property each year is the assumed property insurance rate. So based on a $375,000 property value, that's about $1,500 per year in insurance. And again, that changes as property values go up too, because insurance it should cost you more as your property value is worth more to continue to insure that property. Because if it burns down, they got to replace it. So this is a residential property and 15% of the purchase price is considered the value of the land. We use that when we're calculating the depreciation benefit. Any questions on the property assumptions? This is sort of my, I always feel like I'm like doing a magic trick and I'm showing you, look, there's nothing up my sleeve. Like I'm showing you all my assumptions so that you know exactly what is about to happen. Then when I show it to you, you can't be like, but what's the insurance rate for that? What's the taxes for that? What's the, how much income are they making? Cause I'm answering it all up front. That way you can't say to me later, but wait a minute. Okay. All right. So I wanted to show you a baseline of, hey, if they didn't do any real estate at all, if they just said, I'm going to invest $1,000, I'm going to save $1,000 a month and I'm going to invest that in the stock market. I'm going to get 8% return in the stock market. How long does it take me to achieve financial independence if I only invest in stocks. And for this one, it's primarily that 4% safe withdrawal rate times the amount that they have invested in stocks, right? Because that's where the majority of their money is coming from. So in that case, it takes them 482 months, about 40 years. Someone who's saving $1,000 a month, that doesn't seem like it's that wrong, right? I mean, it takes you 40 years to save up for retirement. You're gonna be like 61 years old at that time, and you'll have enough to be able to replace your income using a safe withdrawal rate by investing in stocks, doesn't seem unreasonable. So that's all it takes. What if they just buy one owner-occupant property where they move in and they live there and they do the rest in stocks? Does that impact things? Turns out it does. They can actually retire, be financially independent at 396 months if they buy one owner-occupant property and invest in stocks otherwise. So considerably faster. That, what is that? 86 months? What is that? How many years is that? Seven years? Okay. Okay. Now they've, at this point, we've we've kind of taken it back. They have not opted to buy the owner-occupant property anymore. They're only gonna buy rentals. They're gonna continue to live in a rental themselves and they're gonna buy up to 10, 20% down payment rentals. If they buy 10, 20% down rentals, they live in a property that they're they're not buying a property to live in. They're just staying in the property that they're renting in and continue to pay whatever rent increases there are. It takes them 370 months buying 20% down rental properties in order to achieve financial independence this way. If they buy 10, 25% down rental properties, so they're putting more down, they're waiting longer in order to have the down payments, and they're delaying buying the properties. But when they buy them, they have slightly better cash flow because they put more down. They have a little bit better interest rate. They had to pay a little bit less in points and they put less, they put more down. So they're borrowing less. So their monthly payment is lower. So they have the benefits of additional cash flow. That means that they can actually achieve financial independence in 346 months. If they do it that way, just something else to point out too. When you do the 20% down loan and there's two points in order to get that loan. Isn't that sort of like a 20, 22% down loan? That's closer to that 25% down than you might've thought, right? Because it's not 20% down now, it's 20% plus two points. So it's really a 22% down loan in order to get that loan. Where the 25, you have no points. So it's really 22 compared to
0: 25. So it's closer than you'd think, right? You got a microphone? Microphone? I guess it'd be on the, uh, um, I'm that you're taking out the loan, 25%
1: purchase price, but.
2: That's right, it's a cost for one of them
0: and the other one you're actually getting even more benefit by putting more down. Right, so it would point me Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you're you're right, because it's the the 20% down is on the initial purchase price and the 2% is on the loan balance. Yeah,
2: you're right. So it's 80% of the, two, of the 2%. Right. So 1.6. Foot in there. But. Yeah. No, you're right. That's a good point. Okay. Note to self. Steve not invited to the next meeting. No, he's all good. Okay, cool. So we did that 25% down there. What if they do 15% down? It actually goes up. It matches what they did with the 20% down at 370 months. So it's actually slower for them to do 15% down than it is for them to do 25% down
0: but it's the same as if they did the 20% down, okay? To rent or buy. So right now, this couple is living in a place that costs $1,800 a month.
2: Remember the rent on the property that they're buying is $2,600 a month. So they're living in a lower quality house or getting an amazing deal from somebody. But if they were to buy the property, their expenses would increase quite a bit. In fact, it would go about $600 a month higher in their cost to buy that property. So instead of saving $1,000 a month that they keep renting where they are, they would only be saving $420 a month when they buy a property to live in. So by buying a property to live in, yeah, they have a little bit higher standard of living, a little bit nicer house that they're living in, but they're also saving considerably less which is gonna impact their speed at which they can acquire properties. So should they rent or buy? Well, what if they own or occupy, buy one property to live in, then they start doing their 20% down payment rentals. Well, if they do that, it takes them 394 months to achieve financial independence. Before, if they didn't own or occupy, they were able to do it with 20% down rentals at 370 months. So it takes them two years longer if they decide to owner or occupy and live in a little, little bit nicer property to achieve financial independence? What if they do 25% down? In that case, it takes the same exact amount of time, 394 months, that's if them buying a property to live in and then saving up to do 20, 25% down payments to do that. Huh, what is going on at 394 months that they're both the same? We'll come back to that. And then finally, if they do 15% down, it's still 394 months. Why are they all the same? Does anyone know why they're all the same? Why are they, why is putting, if you're going to owner-occupy a property, but then you're going to buy 20% down, 25% down, or 15% down properties, why are they all the same 394 months to achieve financial independence? It's not that they all get paid off. It's that their owner-occupant property, they bought it not immediately because they didn't have enough for a down payment, so it took them a little while to save, but their owner-occupant property gets paid off at that point. And when you actually have your owner-occupant property paid off, you no longer need $5,000 a month to maintain that same standard of living. You actually are $5,000 a month whatever that mortgage payment was less. So your target to be able to achieve financial independence now drops. You no longer have to be able to afford that mortgage payment. You still need taxes and insurance, but not the principal and interest part. So that happens at month 394, because now they no longer have a principal and interest part of their mortgage payment. So the threshold for them to be qualified financial independence is now lower. So they achieve it. Does that make sense? Okay. So, why are they similar? Paying off your primary residence reduces the amount you need to qualify as financially independent. These are all right around when they pay off their primary mortgage, including the one where they bought one owner occupant
0: property and they had stocks, because that also lowers the threshold then too, okay? Any questions on this? Sweet. So changeable short-term rental assumptions.
2: And I talked a little bit about this. Rents are gonna be higher, but fees and expenses on rents will be significantly higher as well. Overall, I've assumed that the net after all the additional expenses will be 25% higher. So in this case, instead of $2,600 a month, I'm assuming you're netting 3,150 per month in rent. But I also added some more to maintenance. My thinking was, hey, look, if you've got a property and you've got a lot of turnover and people are living there and and actively being in there, you're probably having a little bit more wear on a property than having a tenant living there for a year and having just regular turnover or a year or more, okay? So I assume that maintenance went from 10%, which is $260 a month, because it's 10% of the $2,600, bless you, or 20% of the $3,150, which is $630 per month. So now this has increased quite a bit. And so when you have... Both a 25% increase, but then this is increased by whatever that is, almost 400 bucks. It means a very modest increase in cash flow. So here's cash flow at year 10. When you had it uh, with the uh, short term rentals, you're doing about $220. I'm sorry, you're doing two, $467 a month with the short term rental and $220 a month if you were just doing the long term rental. So you're still doing more cash flow, but it's not quite as significant as you might have thought. And I may be completely underplaying this where you may say, but James, you know, I'm really doing twice as much in rent and my maintenance is closer to 20% or maybe it's 25 or whatever it is, but do it twice as much in rent. My number is going to be much, much better. Yeah. That's why all these assumptions are changeable. Go load it up and change the assumption and rerun it and see what your number is. But based on this, I wanted to show you what the impact of achieving financial independence
0: is, even with just this modest increase. Okay. So. Now doing the
2: short-term rental with 20% down, they achieve financial independence in month 298. It's significantly shorter than all the other options we've considered so far. So getting that extra rent matters. And then 25% down, it's 285 months, which is even shorter. And putting 15% down, it actually is the same as if you bought 20% down rentals. Okay. So it does increase it. The best one is doing 25% down for short-term rentals. And then what if you owner-occupy and then do short-term rentals? Those are all right here. Buy one owner-occupy and then short-term rental, 20, just 20%, 25% and 15%. So it bumps it back up to 346 months for the 20%, 334 months for the 25% down and 345 months
0: for the 15% down. So it's sort of what you'd expect. Any questions on that? That's it. I will stick around for questions. I got applause, mate. Eh? Any questions on any of that? Overwhelming? Micro? See? Yeah, I don't know how many people will care about this question or the answer to it. Um It
1: was sort of related to PMI. Do lenders. Care the source of your down payment. For example, if you're actually using HELOCs, not cash, um, is a lender going to care ahead of time? You know what the interest rate on your HELOC is. Are they going to try to precompute? You know these monthly payments on your HELOCs, or are they just going to say, "Oh, twenty five percent is twenty five percent. I don't care if it's cash or, you know, whatever."
2: Yeah. So that that's a really good question. I'll answer. A couple parts of it and then tell you definitely talk to your lender to find out okay and if you're concerned that you don't want to you know muddy the waters with the lender you're actually using call a different lender and get a generic answer to the question and then call your lender to verify but here's how i would think about this um i think the lender is going to definitely take into account the payment you would have on your heloc to qualify you from a debt to income perspective so that will definitely be a factor uh, for qualifying for loan however I don't think that they would have a problem with you using the HELOC as the source of your down payments um, to do that. But it's possible that these loan programs can change and that they might you know, raise an eye at it as things change. But my understanding is that you can use HELOCs for down payments, um, but they do take into account the payment you would have on your HELOC to qualify for your DTI calculation. Um, and they may even do more severe than what you might imagine. They may say, uh, because you have the capability of borrowing up to this amount, we are going to use the max. So they might even do something like that. But talk to your lender to find out for sure. That, was that all the parts of the questions? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I know people do cash out refinances and then they use the money in order to buy properties as well. So I would think the HELOC would act very similarly to that. Um, but they do, in general, they do care where you get your down payment from. If money just suddenly shows up in your account, they're gonna want you to source it. They're gonna want you to tell you where you got it from. Like, you know, it's sold by Dogecoin or whatever it is. <laughs> right, exactly. So they're gonna to wanna to know. Um, and then you may need to produce documentation on such things, which, I mean, this is the part of the challenge with a lot of these crypto things, right? It's like, unless you have a really crypto-friendly bank, it mm, might get
0: tricky, might get tricky. Any other questions? Oh, can you go back to the slide that shows
1: the, I'm just curious about the 15% versus 25, 20% versus 25%. What are these? Nope. Um, Yeah, not the short, yeah. The, not the sh- short term rental? The
2: not short term. Yeah, I think you're on the right one. I think, I think I just, these I, are the non-short term rental. I'm just curious. Oh, these are the owner-occupant ones. Oh, they have both of them on there. But. Yeah, so what are the variables that you think
1: make a difference between the 15 the 20 and the 25, like, why is the, why are these the same or why are these why is Why is the
2: 25% better than the 15? Is that two reasons. PMI? You, yeah, well, PMI, I think it's gonna be a factor, but it's really the two reasons I talked about. The interest rate's much better on the 25%. You're going from, where's it on the sheet? Is it 6.75? 6.75 yeah. versus 6.5, right? Correct. Yeah, so that's one reason. So that compounds over this time period you know whatever it is, and multiple properties. So like it cascades. Not you're not just talking about one property with that 25% difference. You're talking about 10 properties eventually with that difference later on. And so it, it cascades. It gets worse and worse and worse, um, or better and better and better, depending on which way you're looking at it. So the, the interest rate is a difference. And when you do 15% down, you're borrowing more, and so your cash flow is much worse than if you put 25% down because you're borrowing less. You're putting more down. The amount you're b- borrowing is also down and the interest rate is better. And so that does make a huge difference in cash flow. And you think that, does that
1: cash flow make up for the fact that you're putting less down so you have more cash to buy your next property with a 50% down?
2: You don't have more cash. They're buying properties as soon as they get to the point where they have enough down payment and reserves. So as soon as they get to that point, they're buying their next property and then they're saving up, saving up, saving up until they could buy it. So if you look at the chart of like how many properties they own and when, when you're buying 25% down properties eventually i think you get to the point where you're buying faster the, fifth, the first one you buy might be a little bit quicker but then it's worse cash flow so you may not even be saving as much so it takes you longer to do that or maybe similar amounts but you are you're, you're being impacted by that lack of savings rate in order to do that
1: i like those graphs that you've had before that show those steps
2: yes it, it really... and and if you go if you go pull up and on the models you'll be able to look at all those i just the complaint i sometimes get is James, you show me 300 charts. No. It, right. Yes, it is, the, it is the complaint I get, which, I mean, I like charts and I like showing the charts so I can show you all this stuff. But sometimes when we don't have that chart, like I, I've occasionally even said to people in the room, this chart, I'm not even gonna talk about unless someone challenges me because I want to be able to show you this as to like how I got to where we are and it's, it's sort of like, a, it's like ammunition for arguments in class. But, you know, today I tried to keep it simple and, and, and simplified it. So, the, oh, one other thing I'll add. So this exact person, have you been listening to the new Real Estate Financial Planner podcast where I go and I do like Andrea and her story and do that? Well, I'm doing this person through a large number of different scenarios. I'm gonna take this storyline. And so I'll do individual episodes on each one of these scenarios. And so you'll be able to see a lot more detail too that way. It's using these, these interest rates all the way through? Yep.
1: Okay.
2: Yeah. I'm gonna try to do like one story arc where we don't change anything. But then in another, in the advanced versions of it, I'm using variable interest rates and variable appreciation rates and variable rent appreciation rates and variable inflation rates um, and one more variable thing. But there's like five things that are variable to show you like, and then I'm gonna run it a 1,000 times to show you what the range of expectations are. They may be financially independent anywhere between month 274, where it's one time out of 1,000, all the way up to month 495. I'm just making up these numbers. And that's one time out of 1,000. And the majority of them are in this range of here to here. And I'll be able to show you that in advanced. And those are based on historical data, like the variable rates though. No, the, they're they're variable. So like, instead of doing, um, instead of doing an interest rate of 6.5, I'll say, look, it's 6.5 month one, but there's a chance it could go up to 6.25 the next month, or it could go down to 6.375. And so there's just a probability distribution. And so. Sometimes you with know, one run out of a thousand, maybe it actually ticks down, but another time it might actually tick up where they go to, to seven or eight or nine as you're buying more properties, but it changes every month so that when you finally do buy a property, the interest rate may be much different than what it is today, but it's doing a change each month to see like where it moves and over a large enough sample size. And I don't even know if a thousand is truly large enough, but it gives you a decent range of like what the values might be. And you could see like, hey, interest rates has a major factor here. And so if, if interest rates go up, this looks much worse for them. If interest rates go way down, this looks amazing for them. And so you can now see some of those things happening with interest rates, with rent depreciation rates, because what happens if the market softens and they're getting better deals as they're acquiring, and then it turns around and they go up? What happens if prices go up when they're buying, and then it starts taking off when they you know, kind of get to the point where they have 10? All of those things can happen in those runs as well. And it combines with rent appreciation and price depreciation and interest rates, and inflation rate and well, there's an, oh, the stock market rate of return is also random. So those are the five to help.
1: Uh, I'm just picturing in my mind, like, what if, you know, what if at year seven
2: interest rates go down and you refinance and like, how would that, I mean, that's, what's awesome about my software is that I can say if interest rates drop below a certain thing, refinance and ratchet it down. And then how does that improve? That could be part of the algorithm for doing the testing. That would be really,
1: yeah, that'd be really interesting to see like how 15 and 25 changes and if 15 shoots farther ahead based on a five-year refinance to the
2: same interest rate or something. This is literally why I wrote that software because I had those same questions, right? About my own personal stuff. I'm like, look, I've got, I'm on this plan. What happens if, and then my mind just goes crazy. What happens if stock market tanks? What happens if there's a real estate market correction again? What happens if prices go out of control up or prices kind of stabilize or prices go down and I'm able to acquire more properties? Like, what do all these differences mean to me? And how does it impact my ability to be resilient in in retirement or, you know, during my acquisition phase of kind of getting to that point? Like,
0: what happens there? This is literally why I wrote all this stuff. (laughs) But those are the types of questions. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's it. Okay, cool. That's it. All I got for you guys. Thanks. You stick around for questions. That's all I got for you. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract
1: the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Indianapolis is harder than ever. Book a call